Well, we're going to end our series on stewardship today. We're going to talk about faith, the stewardship of our faith. Turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to look at Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul is writing. Paul is writing a letter to Rome, a city to which he had not been before he wrote this letter. So all the information that he's addressing and giving to the church at Rome came by way of reports from other people. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Lord, help us as we study. God has given everyone a measure of faith. And I'm convinced by experience and theology that the faith he has given us is the same faith for everybody. It's not like he gave a bucket load to somebody and a thimbleful to somebody else. That he distributes this faith in an adequate measure to everybody who wants to call upon his name. But the church at Rome had, had begun to develop hierarchies based on certain levels of faith and some people considered themselves more important because they had quote-unquote better faith than somebody else. A Jewish person who was able to tie their lineage back to Abraham may have thought that by pedigree he was a little bit more valuable to the kingdom than somebody who was a Gentile that grew up in a very pagan environment. A person of status may have thought they're more valuable to the kingdom than the person who was a slave. People of influence financially may have thought they had more to give God and therefore God valued them more than somebody who was poor. People who had knowledge more valuable to God than those who did not. And so Paul deals with this issue of thinking more than you, more of yourself than you ought to think all throughout the book of Romans. In fact, out of the gate he starts with it. Now you got, you've got to, you got to understand the culture to understand why Paul said what he said the way he said it. In Romans chapter 1, the first five words are supposed to just turn the church on its ear. Usually, we just run past all the salutations, the hellos, because we want to get to the meat. We're not interested in Paul introducing himself. I, Paul the apostle, sent by God, stewarded, blah, 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 blah. And he, he has to say those things, not only to say hello, but to give credibility that he actually wrote the letter because there were people who would use his name and try to get influence in the church by giving different doctrine. And so he had to make sure that he identified himself so that the church would understand this is actually me. And he did it in different ways, usually by, by really identifying with the idea of him being an apostle. Well, here he does it a little bit different. To the church of Rome, he says in the first five rows, words, I, Paul, a bond slave of Christ Jesus. Now, you may not think much of that, but I'm sure he penned this with great thought. The Romans were the rulers of the world. The empire had stretched from, or would stretch from England all the way into Africa and as far east as Babylon. 
It was a vast territory to, to try to rule. And Rome was the capital city. And there were no more proud people of the Roman Empire than those who lived in Rome. And Rome really built its entire economy and power base on the back of slaves. Slaves didn't even, couldn't reach the bottom rung of the ladder in occupation. They were that low. No status. They were lower than poor people who were citizens. They had no name except that which the master had. If they had children, the children weren't theirs. If they married another slave, that spouse was not theirs. That spouse could be sold at any time. Slaves were not even counted as anything but property in the Roman Empire. And the church of Rome had heard about Paul. Though they'd never seen him, they heard about him. His reputation preceded him. He was an amazing man going to places where there was no church and after three months having one, using the plow of his tenacity combined with the word to unearth the rocks that would be impediments to the progress of the gospel and produce something that never was in a city birthing young men and women to preach this gospel that were equal to his anointing and grace, that when he sent them, it's as if he went. Developing doctrine on how the cross applied to marriage. Where do you think we get the idea of husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church? From Paul. Developing ideas about what it meant to deal with your money well, stewarding it well. How do we sow and reap? Paul came up with the best theology and, and, and it was so good, God decided to canonize it. There were people that had good ideas, wrote wonderful letters that did not wind up in the Bible. But Paul's did, every one of them. He was that great. And his reputation had preceded him in Rome, though he had never been there. They realized this man is amazing. And with their hierarchical structure, they thought he's going to come with pomp and circumstance, identifying himself just like we would suppose. As a great man of almighty God, ready to deliver the word from heaven. And how does he introduce himself? I, Paul, a slave of Jesus. That messed with Rome. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Listen, I know what my slave does. He does what I tell him. And, and we don't regard slaves as much of anything. And I realize you want to identify with Jesus. I got that, Paul. But do you really have to call yourself a slave? I mean, do you know what we think of slaves? Exactly. You think they're less than. When in the, when the economy of God, there are some slaves that theologically got it on you. There are some sl slaves that God might think a little bit more of than you because you are so proud and they are so humble. Watch it. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. But think as with sound judgment. Paul had to bring the Roman church down to the level where they no longer elevated the status of their own humanity, but now began to look at Scripture and saw who they really were. And may I say that that prescription doesn't change. If you think you're all that, God will show you you're not. Amen. He will bring you down. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. The, the, the part that's not there, if you don't, he will humiliate you. If you do not humble yourself, he will do it for you. That's painful. 
Humble yourself, please. Humble yourself. Because when he does it, it hurts much more. God had to bring them down in order that he might show them where they are, who they really are, and then build them back up. And he says, realize this, that God is the one who gave you your faith, and he gave it to everybody. You didn't just wake up one day fully enlightened on your own, thinking I need to repent and serve my God. The way you got there is that God granted you the grace to repent in Romans 2. They were so proud that Paul had to tell them that the only way they could repent is if God let them. They thought they were so all that that they came to the knowledge. Self-enlightenment had, had, had come upon them. And they woke up one day and said, I'm a, I'm, I'm a realized Jew. I love my Messiah. Now I will serve him. God granted you the grace to see that. And the only way you can believe in him is that he allotted to you the measure of faith. Now, it's not that God doesn't do that for everybody, but it's that somebody recognized it and that's how you got born again. This is a message for whosoever will. But one day your eyes recognize the mercy that had given you the grace to be able to see the right thing and you repented. God is the one who led you. He says to the church at Rome, don't think you're all that. The only way you got here is that God allotted you a measure of faith. Just like he allotted it to the lowest in your church. And this measure of faith, I'm convinced, as I said before, is the same for everybody. But Jesus describes faith in terms of kind and not value. In other words, he doesn't say, to one I give a gallon of faith, and to another I give a thimble full of faith. He says this, to all I give a mustard seed. Whenever he talked about faith in the Gospels, Jesus spoke about faith with respect to a mustard seed. And, and the reason he did that is because the mustard seed was one of the smallest seeds you could plant. He said in, in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a mustard seed. Though it be the smallest seed in the garden, when it's planted, it becomes the largest tree. So big is it that the birds of the air come and make their nest in its branches. Jesus doesn't want anybody to feel more than they should about their own faith in thinking that somehow God gave me a gallon and gave you a thimbleful. He wants you to understand he gave us all a seed, if you will. But what we do with that seed determines how big our faith grows. So we all got the same, but how you cultivate it makes all the difference in the world. And so you got to make your faith grow. Now let me give you a picture. How'd you wind up here at 1245 on Sunday? No, I'm not talking about this Sunday. Why do you keep coming back? Why did you become members of this congregation? It's not so much that we have our act together, because you look around, there'll be some things that, are, that you see holes. It's not because we're so professional, though we really work hard at presenting truth in such a way that you can trust us in what we say and what we do. But it's that we decided as a group, not just me, as a group, elders, deacons, staff members, that we are going to take the little mustard seeds we've got, plant them together, and let's see if we can produce a tree so large that thousands can come and rest in our branches. That's what we did. We produced a version of the kingdom called Grace Covenant Church that makes you feel comfortable to put your children in our children's church and let them rest and grow there. 
to put your junior high kids over here at 180. To take your college kids and, 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 and know that David Hermes is going to care for them over at the campus. To wind up here and bring your friends. There you fly in every Sunday and you bring in a whole flock of people with you. Why? Because this tree provides rest and shade for you. That's how your faith ought to work regularly. Not just for a congregation. But everybody with whom you come in contact ought to be able to see that your branches are strong enough to support them. That's the kind of Christian you ought to be. If your, if your faith is still in mustard seed form, happy about you getting it, but you got issues. Amen. Something wrong with you. Either something wrong with the soil, something wrong with the cultivation, the watering. You're not weeding your garden good enough. Your plants are only about this big. This big, that big, that big. Weeds all over the place. You can barely see it because there's so many weeds. Weeds of distraction and finances, weeds that are trying to take your attention away in your career of education, men, women, relationships, so many weeds, you have not given any time to the cultivation of this seed that needs to grow big enough for your benefit and everybody else's. God help you. God help you. Your faith needs to grow. He's given you a measure. What you do with it is yours. That's your responsibility. We're going to talk on three levels. One, faith to be saved. Two, faith to live well. Three, faith to help other people live well. First, faith to be saved. Peter again. <clears throat> um, Peter here speaks. Now, move from Paul to Peter. I'm sorry. Peter speaks in Acts chapter 2, verse, verse 40. And, and this is the occasion of the church being birthed. Uh, Jesus had risen from the dead. The Holy Spirit had fallen upon the disciples in such a way that power came on them to be his witnesses. And they went out into the streets, spilled out, and they were speaking in other tongues. And, and people were hearing them speak of the glories of God in their own languages to which they were born. Fourteen different nations mentioned there. They were amazed that these Jews who were Galileans were able to do such. And so they said they must be drunk because they cannot speak our dialect. And they were literally saying, how do we who hear these Galileans speaking, how do we hear them speaking in the dialect to which we were born? Now, if you ever learn French, generally speaking, when you go to France and you become fluent, they still know you from America. You may get the language, but you may never get the dialect. These people were hearing Galileans. They were country folk from West Virginia. You get the picture? I'm not down in West Virginia. I like people in West Virginia. Just, okay, pick your country folk then. You don't like mine? Pick your own. Country folk. <laughs> Spoken in a dialect. How do we hear these country bumpkins from Galilee speaking in the dialect to which we were born? They got to be drunk, which doesn't really pan out to me because I've never heard people inebriated speak better. This never happened for me. They got to be drunk. Peter said, no, no, no. It's not, we're dr it's not that we're drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day, meaning 9 a.m. This is what the Holy Spirit spoke about. This is what the prophet Joel spoke of, that the Holy Ghost would fall upon men and women, and they begin to prophesy and see dreams and visions, and old men and, and, and young men. It would, oh. And he began to preach, and then he preached about Jesus. And he got to the, to the, to the moment of decision. He said, no for certain that this Jesus whom you crucified has been made both Lord and Christ, 36, verse 36 of chapter 2. And it says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said, 
They said to, to the brethren and the apostles, is there any hope for us? How did, how is God thinking about us? I mean, does he want to kill us? We murdered his son. How mad is he at us? That's what they were concerned about. They said literally, quote, what can we do? You can only, you can only really understand an answer that's born from mercy when you know how guilty you are. If you don't understand how guilty you are and how you are deserving of condemnation, punishment is yours. You earned it. I earned it. Until you understand that, you'll never appreciate mercy. Only he who knows that the gavel has sounded and, and he is deserving of execution is weeping and crying tears of gratefulness at a pardon. He who believes he didn't deserve the judgment thinks he did deserve the mercy and therefore gratefulness never comes these people realize we've done a horrible thing Jesus died because of my actions are you listening to me Jesus died because of your actions he died for your sin the response should be the same as theirs is there any hope for us and, and Peter said this yes repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. Now, we read that religiously because we've read it so often. But I'm convinced there was a huge pause after that. Because all these people out there were, were waiting for the prophet of the day to bring down judgment as prophets of past had. They were waiting for the oracle of God to tell them what they needed to suffer as a result of their wrongdoing. And what Peter says is, yeah, uh, repent, dunk yourself in some water, and then you get a gift. <laughs> and I imagine all these people were saying, you, you mean, I'll... I got All I got to do is repent. Oh, uh, and then he's gonna, he's gonna give me a gift. Who is this God? Who is he? I killed this boy, and he's gonna give me a gift. Who is me first? Me first. The line was long to try to get this gift. The line was long to say, I want to repent first. Just tell me how I need to do it. 3,000 people got born again. 3,000 after a 20-minute message. Then it says, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. And the summary of this, his message was this. Be saved. From what? This wicked and perverse generation. Now, when we speak of salvation, we normally speak of it with respect to heaven. You ask somebody, are you saved? Say, yeah, I'm saved. They mean I'm going to heaven. But Peter wasn't talking about heaven. He said, be saved from here. Be saved from this generation. Now, heaven is amazing. Amen. There are only two places you go when you pass from this earth. One or two. Heaven or hell. And hell has been characterized 
as a place that's kind of a party atmosphere. Jesus didn't do it that way, but our society has so minimized the, bur- the, 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 the dealings, the condemnation, the judgment that is in hell, that they've, you know, you talk to somebody, yeah, I'm going to go to my hell, go to, my, uh, go to hell and party with all my friends. Lots of things wrong with that, but here are two. One, there will be no parties in hell. Two, you will have no friends because friendship is a God thing. The only thing that's represented in hell that is reflective of God is his perfect, unbridled, unboundaried judgment. That's it. And that for all of eternity. There will be no friendship because friendship is a God thing and the only thing that will be expressed in hell from people is who they are without any of the restraints that we find from Scripture. So anger, bitterness, malice, resentful, re- resentment, murder, hatred, all these things will come out without limit for all of time. For all of time. Compound that with what hell is just in terms of judgment. That is just who people are without the grace of God. The judgment is fire that is as white hot as possible. Torment for all of eternity and it doesn't stop. I deserved that. That was Brett before he got right. That's what I deserved. So when I have a really bad day, I just remind myself I'm not going to hell. I get a little happy. Bad day turns good real quick. I'm not going to hell. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And as bad as hell is, heaven is better. Heaven is better. The bliss, the blessing, the contentment, the rewards that he gives us. Why? Because we just did what we were supposed to do. But this is our God who just keeps doing stuff for us and blessing us with stuff that we really don't deserve. Rewards he gives us. And I don't even know what they're going to be like, but they're going to be those rewards that never get old. You just keep enjoying them. They're not like the obsolete things people make today. You buy a car five years later, you got to trade it in. No, no, no. Every day you get up, you'll still be enjoying this. It'll be like, wow, what a gift. I don't even know what it looks like. But that's what you'll say every day. God, you are so amazing. Relationships, as bad as it is in hell, they will be, exempl- they will be intensified. And, and, and you will have greater times in, of, of communion because you won't have any longer the barrier of the flesh to try to break through all the time. It will be amazing in heaven. As great as that is. Peter doesn't say that's the goal. In product, yes, but not gold. Be saved from here. Be saved from here. And he calls his generation a wicked and perverse generation. <laughs> perverse means twisted. Now, that generation was wicked and twisted. Got it. If there was a race, we might beat them. We, 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 I, think, I, think, I, think, I think it's going to be a photo finish. We might beat them. Our generation's really messed up. I don't know if there's a, if there's a more 
if there's a more parallel generation to Isaiah's day than this one, where we are calling good evil and evil good, Isaiah 5.20. I don't know. People that are saying right things are being villainized. And those that are doing wrong are being praised. We live in a messed up world. And we no longer have the rudder of scripture to be the, the, the starting point of what is good and wrong. What is right and bad. We don't have that. Now it's just whatever anybody thinks. And anytime somebody begins to call something wrong that is wrong that everybody says is right, they are called wrong. <laughs> and then they back it up. Those who are calling the right wrong, they back it up with their pet scriptures. Love everybody. Don't judge lest you be judged. Treat others like you want to be treated. And I say, amen. I'm glad you know three passages. That's wonderful. You've read a little bit of your Bible or at least been in the environment where it was spoken. I'm so happy you memorized something. What about the rest of it? There's a lot more there. Jesus' exhortation regarding judgment was, was all on judging wrongly, not not judging. You've got to make judgments every day, whether you're going to take a job or not, what restaurant you're going to eat at, who you're going to marry or not, who you're going to call a boyfriend or girlfriend or not, what church you're going to go to. You make judgments every day, and you make judgments about people. They have to be right judgments. My job is to look at the sheep all the time and figure out whether they're healthy or well. I have to judge that. And on the basis of my judgment, I apply the right prescription, either praise or remedy, one of the two. I must judge, but I cannot judge wrongly and somehow say, you know, you're sick and it's because your heart is so wicked and you're going to hell if you don't change. You know that, don't you? Now, that would be wrong. But I have to make judgments so that people understand what they need to do. If you're a parent, you make judgments every day. You, I don't know where love got to be, the, got to be defined as, as that which never says that anybody is wrong. I don't know how it got to be that way. Because if you love your children, you will tell them they're wrong all day long. Oh, m- multiple times a day, you are wrong. Don't do that. Stop that. That's wrong. Because if you love them, you can't let them go the wrong way and do the wrong thing. So if you love somebody, you've got to tell them, if you see them doing wrong, that they're doing wrong. Are we going to tell the police, don't judge me? You say I was going 75. Well, you had to go 75 to pick me up. Try that. Try that. See how that works. (laughs) Be tough to to, to text with handcuffs on, I tell you that. (laughs) Don't judge. Come on now, be smart. I get people, couples come to me and they introduce themselves. They got different last names. I said, oh, wow, it looks like you all really care one another marriage plans down the road? Well, yeah, we're thinking about it. She just moved in six months ago, so we're trying it out. They forgot who they were talking to. They forgot who they were talking to. 
May 7th, 2013, Wilmington, North Carolina. Report. Man calls up 911. Hot as he can be. Reports this. I want to report a crime. I paid $1,100 for some marijuana and cocaine, and the guy did not deliver it to me. Could you please go pick him up? True story. True story. The 911 responder said, pardon me? Yeah. The guy didn't deliver it to me. He took my money and didn't give me my goods. She said, sir, we will be right over to take a report. in sin doing the wrong thing so long that he thought what he was doing while he was in sin was right. Right enough to tell the police that somebody else was wrong. (laughs) You can live in sin so long, going so wrong, that you actually just tell your stuff to anybody forgetting who they are. Here I am, listening to this dear couple, thinking they forgot who I am. Okay. Um, Can we sit down for a minute? And after 45 minutes, it boils down to this. You have three options. You can get married right now. And that's what I do, by the way. I can help you. (laughs) I can help you with that. You can get married right now. Or you can have her move out and you can pay for her apartment until you can get this thing right. Or you can continue to live the way you're living. Now, the mercy of God is following you. He's so merciful that he made you spill the beans to somebody who could help you. See how much he cares about you? That's how much he cares about you. The mercy of God is attending all your way. It's amazing how much God loves you. And so I'm here to help you in this thing. So his mercy will follow you, and I can't plummet. I don't know how deep it goes. But I do know this. You won't make him happy every day. Living in sin will not make him happy. You will miss out on his pleasure. So I beg you, change. But regardless of the decision, I love you and care for you. But you're wrong you got to tell people what's wrong is wrong. you got to tell them if you love them. If you don't love them, let them do what they want to do. Be saved from this generation. This stuff here. Be saved from this. And we have to be saved to something. Peter again, 1 Peter chapter 2, is writing a letter. And he talks about what... what it it means to be saved to God. He says, for you are a holy nation, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession who have been been called out of of darkness into his marvelous light. And you're supposed to proclaim the excellencies of him who has done so. That we are a people for God's own possession. We have been saved to him. We are his. We're not our own. We can't be self-determinative. We're his. And we have to do what he says. And we have to be delivered to him. You order something on Amazon? Any of y'all on Amazon Prime? Mm-hmm. Supposed to be there in two days, right? If it's there in five, what do you do? You're giving somebody a call. Where's my stuff? Didn't show up on day three, didn't show up on day four. Why didn't my stuff show up? Here on day five, I want a refund. Something's going to happen. God paid for you. Where are you at? Have you reported yet? Have you been delivered to him? 
not just from, but to him. Reporting for duty, sir. Whatever you want me to do, I'm yours. You paid for me. Thank you for buying me, purchasing me out of my sin. Saved looks like that. That's what saved looks like. Secondly, we're called to be a people where our faith actually helps us live better individually. So you need to develop character, number one. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, through 23, exemplify some of the finer characteristics of God's nature. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things, these nine things, there is no law. You develop these things in your life, you'll, you'll become the best version of you you've ever been and glorify the Father so that when people see you, they see Him. And the beautiful thing is that there is no law against any of these things. There's no law against them. So if you find yourself running out of patience, you can get more. No law against it. You find yourself running out of kindness, you can always get more. And, and you know what God does because he loves you so much? He puts people in your life that evidence the fact that you need more. They are gifts to you. Those people that tempt you to be mean, no longer kind, they, they are your reminders. I'm lacking here. Those people that drive you up a wall, put you on your last nerve, make you realize, I've run out of patience. Oh, my goodness, I can get more. I didn't know this was my end. I didn't know I'd get here. Remember, the end of you is always supposed to be the beginning of God. So when you come to the end of yourself, that's when you need to tap into his power more. Develop the character so that you can be what you need to be to people. Secondly, develop behavior. You need to look right. You need to act right. Two verses later in Galatians, verse 25, it says, Since you have been, been birthed, or since we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Since you've been birthed by Him, start behaving like Him. Start behaving according to the Spirit of God. We are called to walk consistent with what we believe. And then lastly, we're called to help other people. You need to use your faith, cultivate your faith to help other people. May I say that this is, this is one of the primary reasons you've been left here. If it was all about you just becoming more like Jesus and getting closer to him, then hyperbolically somebody should have done you a real favor and left you in the, the baptismal just a couple of minutes longer <laughs> so you could immediately go to be with Jesus. Because that's where you get perfected in a hurry. Amen. In a hurry. And you get, you'll never get more close to him than there. <laughs> never. Never. Now I'm being facetious. But if it was all about that, then we ought to fight through a lot of stuff just to get to him here. Fight through the distractions of life, our own flesh. We have to walk by faith every day just to hold on to him. So why did he leave you here if it was harder to do that here than it is there? He left you here so that you could help other people develop their faith and get right. That's why he left you here, to help the world become a better place for him and to help people understand who he is and why he died for him. That's why he left you here. I'm going to take an example and we'll close. Mark chapter 2. 
verses 3 through 5. Jesus is at home in Capernaum. He's moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. We don't know when or how, uh, but we do know that Mary and he, his mother, now live in Capernaum. And when he comes home, he is the darling of the town. Everybody loves Jesus, and they realize he does really special stuff. I mean, he's got to tap into God that's unusual. And so when he shows up, everybody hears, oh, Jesus is home. Jesus is home. He's at his house. Woo! And so they just show up. No invitation needed. Folks just come with their lame, their problems, their issues. And he, they, they want counsel. They want wisdom. And so one day he's there in the house, and everybody just showed up. Showed up so great that they filled the house overflowed onto the porch, the stoop, peering in the windows, trying to get just with an earshot to hear anything good that Jesus might have to say. Well, these guys who were in Capernaum had a friend of theirs who was a paralytic, couldn't walk. And so they said, we got to get this guy to Jesus because Jesus can help him. Well, four of them put him on a pallet, and they carried him at the four corners. But when they got to the house, the house was full. There was no, no way to get him in. Nobody was moving. And so they had an ingenious idea. See, they would not let their faith be denied. They cared about this kid. They cared about him deeply. How much do you care about people? Their faith would not be denied. And I'm making this part up, but it had to be something like this. Two guys get on the roof. Two guys stay on the bottom. Two guys on the bottom, hold it from the bottom, lift up the fellow from the top, hand him to the guys on the roof. The other two guys get up on the roof. All four of them start carrying the guy on, on the roof of Jesus' house. And then as Jesus is teaching there in the living room, all of a sudden he feels... Grass start coming in his face. The roof was thatch. It wasn't tiled. And so thatch is dry vegetation that they put together and make a very, lasts about 100 years. I mean, it's a good way to do a roof. But it can be torn apart in a hurry. And they started tearing, to let the buddy down who was paralytic into the living room so Jesus could help him. Now there were a couple of problems with this. One was that Jesus had been stopped in the middle of his message by these guys who were tenacious. But he didn't consider that problematic. He looked at him and said, y'all are amazing. You would not be denied. Your faith is going to get this boy well. And indeed, Jesus looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven because of their faith. Basically, that's what happened. Your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. But then there was Mary. Now, we don't have any any account of her complaining about this. She's not going to complain when somebody gets healed. But we see the next time they were at the house that the same account is, is kind of there. Don't have the guys with the paralytic because he's healed now. But everybody is still coming to the home. And they're filling the doorways, the windows. The house is full. Nobody can get in. Jesus' mama, Mary, is outside with his relatives. They can't even get in. She sends a messenger to Jesus and, and says, uh, could we have a word with you? And Jesus sends back a message through the guy to the parent, to, to Mary and the relatives. Saying, well, the message said, your mother and brothers are out there. Jesus said, well, my mothers and brothers are really those who do the will of God. Now, why would Mary interrupt Jesus in the middle of a message? She'd never done that before. Almost disrespectful. If my mother were still living and she walked in the back door and said, boy, I want to have a word with you. While I was preaching, all of us would say, can't that wait till he's done? I mean, she is a mom and all. We want to respect that, but... Can't she, like, is it emergent? Is somebody dying? Why did Mary do that? Probably because she just wanted to say in the middle of his ministry, don't ruin my roof. (laughs) Please, this time, figure out another way to do ministry. I want the boy healed, but don't ruin my roof this time. 
That's probably it. Those four guys delivered to Jesus a man who could not walk with him prior, but afterwards could. Does your faith help anybody walk with Jesus? Anybody? In your fine Christian life, have you ever helped anybody else walk with Jesus? I beg you, figure out how to work your faith like that. Let your faith grow like that. Let's pray.